Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books and Intellectual History, we have Dr. Anjali Vats, who's an associate professor of communication in African and African diaspora studies and associate professor of law by courtesy at Boston College. Dr. Vats is the author of The Color of Creatorship, Intellectual Property, Race, and the Making of Americans, published by Stanford University Press in 2020. Welcome to the show, Dr. Vat. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. You're welcome, and thank you for uh, agreeing to do this interview. The Color of Creatorship is a complex intellectual property history that examines how copyright, trademark, and patent discourses shape American ideas about race, nation, and citizenship. First, we will discuss Dr. Vatt's biography and some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of her book, The Color of Creatorship. Dr. Vatt, please tell us some more about your educational background, teaching, and research interests, or whatever you'd like us to know about your journey as a scholar. Awesome. That's a great place to start. Um, I, I like to tell the story that I ended up writing about intellectual property and race by trying to avoid writing about race. Um, and what I learned was that intellectual property, much like many other things in the world, uh, is very deeply embedded with histories of race, that it's not, that it's not a space that is uh, free from those histories. Uh, so how does that relate to my background? Well, I started um, I started out uh, after I finished my my bachelor's degree at Michigan State University. I went to Emory Law School. Uh, and at Emory, I had the opportunity to do some civil rights work. I thought I was going to do civil rights um, and international human rights work. Um, but I ended up on an intellectual property moot court team, which I really enjoyed. And so I started uh, studying intellectual property. And then I I went on to do a master's in intellectual property law and policy at the University of Washington, and I clerked for a couple of years. Uh, And at that point, I didn't really have a plan to study uh, race. I thought that I was going to practice intellectual property law. Um, But in a turn of events, I decided to go back uh, for my PhD because I really missed teaching. Uh, so what ended up happening was that I, I got my PhD at the University of Washington uh, in communication. And during that time, I had the opportunity to study uh, race and rhetoric. And so this book is really uh, a culmination of all those interests it wrapped into one. Um, I was able to really start to see and crystallize some of the ways that race uh, manifests in the context of intellectual property law. So very interesting that you say... Um you came by way of, of the study of the law in law school. And uh, my field is intellectual history, and this channel is intellectual history. So it's very interdisciplinary a field for the historian. And 
So my next question is about your thoughts about intellectual history, because this is a history. I mean, you take us through uh, several, really the whole compendium of, of intellectual um, property law. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about intellectual history in general, or how would you describe it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, I think intellectual histories are really about tracing where ideas come from and how they're formed in in social and cultural and political spaces. Um, I will say that I did not I did not set out necessarily to write an intellectual history of intellectual property law. Um, I didn't even necessarily set out to write a history. Um, and I don't I don't claim to be a historian by training. But uh, what I found when I started this project was that I had to do some self-orientation. Um, there are a number of fabulous scholars that have written about race and intellectual property, um, folks like Madhavi Sundar and uh, Keith Aoki, KJ Green, I could go on naming them. Um, the thing that, that I wasn't really getting was a big picture of where these ideas came from. So what I set out to do was to trace those ideas to, to their origins. And I thought that that would be, that would help me understand what the foundations of intellectual property uh, law were, but that then turned into the whole book in and of itself. So that was really an, an interesting thing. I, I think I can call myself a, an accidental historian in that, in that sense. Um, and for me, intellectual, um, intellectual history in this context is really about trying to understand um, how we got the intellectual property laws we got and where they came from and how uh, they have been uh, or not been intertwined with conversations about race and whiteness uh, since the formation of the nation. Right. It's absolutely, it's a history, but it's more than a history because you're looking at, I mean, so many facets of intellectual property law. At one point, you're looking at the, the motion picture business. You're looking at the music industry over uh, just a, a broad sweep of historical time. It's just, um, I think it is astounding feat. As a, as a text that moves into so many different areas of American life. Um, you mentioned uh, race and critical race theory, and it, this will be up to you. It wasn't one of our official questions, but avoiding the discussion of race. But critical race theory has been in the news of late, <laughs> particularly with our um, current president attempting to <laughs> erase the discussion of critical race theory. Um, but how tell us can you tell us more about how critical race theory informs this particular uh, work of yours? Absolutely, absolutely. And I am I'm happy to speak to the the Trump element of this as well, or number forty five as some people prefer to call him. Um, I started reading critical race theory uh, when I was in college. I was probably twenty years old, nineteen years old. I um, actually came. I came to post-colonial theory first. I remember reading my first Spivak and then uh, moving into the work of folks like Derek Bell. Uh, so it's, I think it's important that folks understand what critical race theory is and why it emerged. Critical race theory is a movement that emerged in the legal academy first, and it was really a response to the rollback of civil rights that happened in uh, the post-civil rights moment. So in the 1970s, uh, with with uh, the rollback of busing 
and in the 70s and 80s with the refusal of, of broad affirmative action laws. Uh, one of the things that came with, with that rollback was this notion of colorblindness um, and also this acceleration of the idea of reverse racism. So, uh, you know, I think that, that um, President Trump wants to package critical race theory as this threatening anti-white idea um, because we're in a kind of nationalist, populist, white nationalist moment, right? Um, that, that's what I mean to say with nationalist. Um, but that's not what it is at all. Really, it was a response by legal scholars, folks like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, Angela Harris. Uh, these were folks that were really trying to make a place for, for um, people of color in the legal academy. And they were really trying to understand how uh, we had managed to to have this moment of civil rights revolution and then how that moment was not really playing out in equality uh, for black and brown people in the country. So when I think about critical race theory, I do not think of the things that Trump uh, raises in terms of, you know, threat to whiteness. What I think about is how critical race theory helps um, black and brown people understand the, the uh, American politics around race and why those politics uh, came to be and how they are structurally embedded within our legal institutions. Right. As you mentioned, this um, history of ideas, it's part of this long history, I, I would even say, of ideas um, in terms of critical theory, enlightenment tradition, and all of those things quote, unfold over time in a larger history of ideas and this, um, you know, reaction to what was happening, you know, in the um, post-civil rights moment. It's so, so I think the, the tool of the history of ideas helps us get at some of these questions we're faced with uh, at the present. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Um, if we look back from the Enlightenment, um, and I address this in the last in the last chapters of the book. If we look back to the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment really sets the stage for um, liberalism. It sets the stage for how we uh, understand progress. Um, it also sets the stage for how we understand humanness uh, in a lot of ways in contemporary society. So I think you're you're right on to say that this goes as far back as the Enlightenment. Um, and I want to flag that critical race theory is really an interdisciplinary area of study. So critical race theory comes to be in conversation with the radical ethnic studies, uh, you know, uh, departments and programs that are being formed in the post-civil rights moment. Um, and I think it is in conversation with black studies, uh, with Asian American studies. I could, um, you know, I could list more uh, areas that critical race theory now sort of cross-pollinates with. But yeah, mm -hmm. I think those are all embedded together, as you point out. So um, I want to get, get, I guess we can continue on discussion about race and, and this term you use in the uh, introduction, early part of the book, racial scripts, and it's applied in your study. Um, what is meant by the term? And can you give us a concrete example of racial scripts? Absolutely. Um, the idea of racial scripts come, uh, comes from uh, the work of Natalia Molina, who's an American studies uh, scholar. And Molina 
Um, I love, you know, I love it when the, the race scholars win big awards. So she just won a MacArthur, uh, a MacArthur fellowship. There's a known as the genius grants. So I hope that people will take up this idea of racial scripts more broadly. But, uh, what Melina is talking about when she's talking about racial scripts, um, is she is trying to point us to how, uh, race can become, uh, and racial stereotypes can become uh, comparative and overlapping. Uh, so that's to say that if we have um, a negative uh, stereotype or a negative framing of one racial group, that that idea then becomes available to us to use against other groups. The example I'll give is actually not in the intellectual property context, because I think I think we'll move on to the intellectual property argument. But I think a more accessible argument that she makes and other scholars write about is is uh, the birther movement. So if we if we think about the idea of birther rhetorics, birther rhetorics are really um, they really originate as anti-immigrant rhetorics that are um, that are targeted at Latinx people. What we see in the moment when President Obama is elected is that Trump tries to mobilize birther rhetorics against Obama. So what's happening there is uh, an application of this anti-Mexican, anti-immigrant rhetoric, um, the the mobilization of that uh, in a way that produces anti-blackness against Obama and anti-Asian anti-Asianness, right, to the extent that we that we think about um, the rhetorics around Hawaii and how uh, they get mobilized, right? So what we end up with with Obama, I think, is a really interesting portrayal of um, him through the lens of birther rhetorics that then become racist against other groups of people. So they're more easy to mobilize. And we can start to see how um, these these racist ideas are applied more broadly and they're, they move between racial groups as opposed to being confined to one racial group. Yeah, that's a good, um, good example. I was thinking about, as you said, that um, 18th century where uh, Ben Franklin is using the term aliens. And he's, you know, leveling this phrase against the Germans who are overrunning, you know, the uh, Pennsylvania colony. And he says, you know, what are we going to do? What will become of the English? And he uses the word aliens to Mm -hmm. refer to the Scots, Irish and German immigrants who are, he claims, overrunning the colony. So that that word alien then gets used again and again. Absolutely, is a part of a script that makes a lot of sense. So um, let's get more deeply into your book. And I love that title, by the way, The Color of Creatorship. Like it does such a great job of conveying what you're arguing here. But uh, what are some of the early historical examples of how intellectual property law was organized or operationalized to protect the intellectual property interests of whites in the early republic? That's a great question. The way that I approach this study, I just want to take a step back for a moment and and talk about how I use racial scripts in the book. Um, What I'm really interested in is how racial scripts got created. 
uh, through the first copyright patent and trademark acts in the United States, and then how that language maybe didn't get used in exactly the same way, um, but served as a, a sort of word bank and idea bank um, for racist dog whistles over time, even in these laws that seem like they're racially neutral. So um, how how does it protect white people? Well, I think in the early republic, this is a really um, straight straightforward exclusionary problem. Um, critical race theorists talk about the difference between a formal exclusion uh, and uh, the difference between uh, de jure dis- discrimination and de facto discrimination. What's happening in the early republic is that uh, white white people and, and particularly white men are really trying to reserve intellectual property rights through the language of citizenship. So they structure the protection of intellectual property rights around the idea of citizenship. Um, the earliest Copyright Act in the 1790 and then the Patent Act as well, they use this language of citizenship. And that gets liberalized over time to include citizens and residents. Uh, But the the take home here is that only citizens and residents uh, could own intellectual property or register intellectual property. So what that means in practice is uh, that there is a, a literal formal disenfranchisement of black and brown people. And this is why we have conversations about how um, black people, for instance, were uh, inventing even though they didn't necessarily own patents from that time. So one of the ways that creatorship then gets that cast as uh, fundamentally white is is through uh, this formal exclusion through the language of citizenship and, and residency. Yeah, this is, you know, the point about the creator, <laughs> creatorship, the creator is white. And it makes me also think about uh, incidents, you know, you, you, you are demonstrating this is, a, this is a continuum. You know, over time, the creator is white, the person who infringes versus the creator and so on. And how it uh, makes me think of like Du Bois and discussion about there's no language for black genius. Mm-hmm. There's no script for black genius. Mm-hmm. The only script there is is a racial one, and it degrades, you know, folks of color and blackness in particular. So there's no, it's making, your book is making me think about how then there's no language for black genius. And I was had a conversation about the show Jeopardy with someone mm-hmm. and how that show helps to construct the idea, I think, of the white genius, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Personal knowledge. Mm-hmm you know, in terms of who's on the show, who's constantly winning the show and who's invited mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to come on. And it just made me think about kind of an aside, but your book is making me think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and so give us some more detail about this notion. Use this phrase, the intellectual property citizen. And you already have told us that there is this connection to notions of citizenship, creator and citizenship in the early um, republic. Yeah. You know, what? Yeah. Tell us some more about that. Absolutely. I um. I actually don't think your Jeopardy point is incidental. I love that you're making that Jeopardy um, that Jeopardy point because I don't know if you've seen the petition for Lavar Burton to be the next host of Jeopardy. I heard some conversation about that. And I told my friend he will never be 
they because that's not what that show's about. Well, it's an interesting question, right? Relating to that idea of citizenship or of creatorship that you that you're mentioning that goes back to Du Bois, um, uh, because you know there's this whole conversation about black nerds that I won't I won't dive uh, into right now. But yeah, I mean, I think that that this goes back to what you were saying about enlightenment ideas and the history of ideas. Um, I think we have to ask the question of how far back we have to go right. to find the origin point, right, of the of the or the lack of conversation about black genius. Like how embedded is that in our ideas of civilization, of enlightenment, of progress and so on? Uh, and the answer for me is that it's very deeply embedded. So when I'm talking about the intellectual property citizen, um, what I'm trying to do is uh, create what uh, Michel Foucault would call a grid of intelligibility or a kind of schema for understanding how race is organized within the context of intellectual property. Mm. Um, and what that means is I am interested in how the language of citizenship um, not only formally anchors uh, whiteness in the beginning of the Republic, but also how uh, a, a implicit notions of citizenship, i.e. who is a good intellectual property citizen and who is a bad intellectual property citizen, um, become uh, forces that, that affect the outcome of intellectual property cases. Um, I think that citizen, citizenship also becomes what Marufasen would call a prudential characterization. Um, so often, um, Law and society scholars or, you know, uh, folks that are doing cultural studies of law will talk about how law is a place of, of narrative negotiation, that law isn't just is a set of rules that's handed down from above, but we tell stories in law. Right. And mm -hmm. when we tell stories, there are certain people that we find to be more sympathetic and other people that we don't find to be sympathetic. So part of what I think citizenship does is it helps us to understand um, how in the context of intellectual property cases, uh, some people appear to courts to be sympathetic and some people don't appear to be sympathetic. And that's very much connected, I argue, with uh, the way that we treat citizenship and have treated citizenship and also this idea of humanness, who is and isn't human. Right, sure. And like you said, we take it back to the Enlightenment, thinking about uh, George George Hegel's on history. Basically, in that, he says there's no, there's nothing in Africa. Africa has nothing to offer. <laughs> and here he is writing this, you know, um, laying the groundwork for this notion that um, these are folks without, you know, without thought and uh, without humanity, and amid the backdrop of you know, Lennox slave trade and so on. But um, so if we turn our, our, our uh, attention then to uh, uh, racial liberalism in the 20th century um, and the changes in intellectual property law, um, continuities and discontinuities, I guess. Uh, so in your the second chapter, um, as your book unfolds, you begin to talk about racial liberalism in the 20th century. So what impact does it have on intellectual property law? 
the emergence of racial liberalism. Do things get better for the uh, um, people of color and generally? Or Yeah, uh, I think the answer to this question is deeply related to what the critical race theorists are talking about. So let me take a step back here to give... Um, to give listeners a sense of what the architecture of the book is. Um, really, I'm moving through intellectual property law. Um, I use that phrase intellectual property law, and I, I gesture to, the, to critiques of that term because really that's a term that includes a whole bunch of stuff that isn't a, a bunch of bodies of law that aren't necessarily related to each other in their purpose or source and so on. But the areas of intellectual property law that I'm interested in in the book are copyright, patent, and trademark law. And I trace their histories over approximately, um, well, from, from the late 1700s to uh, the end of the Obama administration. Um, and what I am interested in is not necessarily demarcating exact points in history where we start to think about intellectual property citizenship differently but to demarcate eras um, and trends, trend lines in how we approach the idea of creatorship. Um, so what I do is I, I, I ended up, as I was reading through intellectual property cases, I was able to find these anchoring themes that for me really helped uh, me to understand and conceptualize how race could continue to organize each of these areas of intellectual property law. So in the context of copyright, what I found was that there's this persistent idea of uh, true imagination versus uh, infringement or copying or um, a kind of uninspired creatorship, and that that idea of true imagination is racialized. In the context of patent law, the analog was uh, human progress, so um, I was able to trace over time who uh, in copyright or in patent cases was and wasn't imagined to be an agent of human progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last uh, was in the context of trademark law. And I, in a play on Laura Mulvey's work, uh, looked at the white male consumer gaze and how it structures trademarks, right? And we're talking about trademarks now because Aunt Jemima and so on. So there was that great SNL skit. Uh, the other night about um, the trademarks getting getting fired, right? Um, mm-hmm. So um, well, how does this relate to liberalism? Well, we talked, uh, you and I just talked about citizenship, right? This era of formal exclusion. Uh, liberalism is really about this rights-based notion that if we create rights that are equal and colorblind and accessible to all people, then we will solve the race problem in America. Uh, and what, what I find in the context of intellectual property is that even though we have intellectual property laws uh, in copyright, trademark, and patent law that look like they're facially neutral, they still discriminate against uh, groups of people. So I look at a variety of cases that demonstrate that. Um, one, of, one of those sets of cases has to do with, um, with sampling um, and also parity, right? So what does that look like uh, in the context of race, race liberalism? And how do we both gesture to a universal expansion of these rights while at the same time continuing to create um, a kind of unequal citizenship or unequal 
um, allocation of those rights. One of the cases um, you noticed, the Decca Records case in 1950, and uh, the notion of white distinctiveness in this case in particular. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Supreme Records versus Decca Records um, is an interesting case because uh, it involves it involves a line of, of cases in, in unfair competition law that really um, define the directions of copyright law. So you have um, a white artist who makes a cover of um, the work of a black of a black artist, and the, the distinctiveness problem that comes he, comes up here. So um, the judge concludes, Judge Duffy concludes that there is not actually any uh, unfair competition here. That's in part because uh, of who owns the actual composition to the song. Um, but what ends up happening is, is you can see the judge kind of going through and talking about uh, the lack of artistry in mm. the context of, of this uh, race record, uh, so to speak, that, that this black artist has recorded. So this is, I think, characteristic of the way that courts ungenerously read black creativity over time um, and is also emblematic of how courts tend to overestimate white uh, achievements. So this is a case in which uh, the white artist's work is somehow more polished and more creative and um, more worthy of artistic protection than the black artists. And I think that's a, that's a trend that we see um, throughout the history of, of music, um, of, of um, you know, jazz, of hip hop and so on, that we continually stay, see courts protecting um, white creation, even when uh, black and brown people are being extremely creative. Um, so sampling, we can say a lot of things about sampling, but that sampling is not creative is not, in my opinion, one of them. Right. It's 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 um, a hallmark of black music. Uh, think about the, the DeBarge song that gets sampled so many times. A Dream is used on almost every major hip hop record and repetition is, you know, intrinsic to um, black cultural um, production. You know, and I, it makes me think also about the case of the Beatles and Chuck Berry and how, I mean, Revolution is not an original song. You know, um, Come Together is not either, but the Beatles are on a pedestal. You know, they didn't rip anybody off. This is innovation. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that history of music is so important uh, to trace and think about because it is the site of so much negotiation in American history, racial negotiation. Um, I, I start and end the book with blurred lines because that's, I think, a, such a complicated case in many ways. But there are these moments, and you're, you're pointing to them, um, where, you know, before Bismarcky got sued by Gilbert O'Sullivan, uh, these cases of sampling were largely dealt with um, outside of court. They largely involved settling cases quietly and adding someone to the liner notes. Um, you talk about sampling, you know, one of the famous uh, cases of sampling uh, is 
uh, of the song Funky Drummer. And mm-hmm. that song Funky Drummer gets it, it gets sampled, but you know, there's no there's no protection for the black artists. There's no protection for the rhythm, for the repetition. And so there are these intangible elements of uh, creation that copyright law willfully, I will argue, willfully refuses to protect um, rhythm, repetition, etc. And for a long time, music had to be written down. And these are all ways of structurally disadvantaging black artists. So when Bismarck comes along, he samples some of Gilbert O'Sullivan's work. And, and, you know, one of the things I like to joke about is how good Bismarck was for Gilbert O'Sullivan, because the, the same people are not listening to that music. <laughs> and not yeah. only are the same people not listening to that music, but way more people listen to Gilbert O'Sullivan now because they have to teach this copyright case, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, he should be thanking Bismarcky, but instead what happens is that Bismarcky gets, he gets pulled into court and the judge starts this opinion, uh, and this is in uh, 1991, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, the judge starts the opinion with thou shalt not steal. Wow. And then <laughs> recommends criminal penalties, which had never uh, been a thing before. So I think we can, you know, you, you started with this question of Supreme Records versus Decca Records, but we can see this idea of white distinctiveness playing out over and over and over again in the context of, of music and copyright. Sure, absolutely. I, I, I definitely can just think of songs now. And when I heard Blurred Lines, it, as soon as that song came on, I said, that's Marvin Gaye. Uh-huh. It didn't even... As soon as it came on the radio, <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess, you know, he, yeah. the state allowed them to use it and then it unfolds in this, you know, legal case. Totally. I still yeah. sometimes when it comes on, I'm like, is that which song are we listening to right now? Right. It's so I mean, it was so obvious anyway to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's uh, some of these questions we probably may not get to, but that's OK. It's uh, I think it's a good conversation. Um, how did, let's move forward a little bit and, and look at the Obama administration and inter, uh, intellectual property law, uh, inter, intellectual property policy and, um, changes in the law. Do we see, this is the post-racial moment. Mm-hmm. Um, do we see more of the same or, you know, uh, what is actually different under the Obama administration? Or is it much the changing same, you know, the same script? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great question. I want to preface this by saying I have an extraordinary amount of respect for Barack Obama. Um, He, in many ways, did the impossible. I think he is a brilliant man. I also think he was severely constrained in his role uh, as president. You know, he's the first black man um, in the White House and... Uh, that meant there were certain things he could not say um, until, mm-hmm. you know, the end of his second term, which I really enjoyed second term, uh, end of second term Obama, because I think he said some things that he wanted to say for a long time. Um, I think for a lot of Obama's presidency, though, he is uh, maybe not embracing post-racial rhetoric, um, but is at the very least suggesting that we live in a world with a level playing field. And that there is access for black and brown people uh, in areas of inventorship, in areas of copyright law, uh, and 
and so on. So um, there's a contrast that I draw in the chapter on what I call post, post-racial creatorship. And that is that at home we have Obama or domestically we have Obama talking about how anybody can become a creator. He gives this this speech uh, when he signs the America Invents Act and he's like, anybody can become a creator. Um, except then he invokes a lineage of white um, of white creators. He talks about Thomas Jefferson, and we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but Thomas Jefferson was one of the people in the early Republic that was like, black people lack true imagination. He was talking about Phyllis Wheatley, um, and they shouldn't be citizens. So here we have Obama, who is telling us anybody can become an inventor, but also invoking these really problematic narratives of some of the founding fathers of the nation that definitely didn't think that. And at the same time that he's doing that domestically, uh, internationally, he is um, also promoting intellectual property policies that are labeling Chinese people, um, Indian people, etc., as infringers. So what we see, I think, in the post-racial era in this Obama moment is that domestically, um, we are... are um, circulating this discourse about that really functionally ends up being post-racial, uh, that functionally is the idea that anybody, if they, if they um, are able to be entrepreneurial enough, can achieve the American dream, um, while internationally there's um, this really intense, what I call hyper-racial discourse, uh, where the United States is um, attacking um, people of color that maybe have different development trajectories or different values around intellectual property. So I think in many ways, Obama is more of the same um, because the actual laws haven't become more accessible from the race liberal period, but his narrative about the laws is changing. And a lot of the racial, um, the racist ideas, I guess, and the, and the racial ideas in the United States are getting projected internationally at um, Asia and other places that we imagine to have infringers. Yeah, I mean, like you say, the language of the post-racial language, you find it with uh, Michelle Obama and Becoming too. But you also see they both placing a greater emphasis on the individual. Obama is, I would say, is um, engaging in kind of these racial scripts or narratives when he goes to the um, uh, Black church and he says, you know, tells black men, you know, get off the couch, go get a job, you know, you know, almost as if, you know, it's all on you to, to go out and be responsible. He gets criticized for that. So, I mean, as somebody trained in the law, you would think, I mean, I mean, you have more hope, right? That he's aware because he's also a trained lawyer, but at the same time, treating some in some of these same racial scripts. And, um, and recently with his, his latest book that came out, basically saying, you know, Trump was elected because it was a backlash against my presidency. And he's being dragged on Twitter right now about that comment. So there's maybe with him some blind spots in um, looking at the racial landscape. Yeah. You know, I was reading that, uh, an excerpt uh, from his new book last night. 
Um, uh, The Atlantic published an excerpt of it. And it just got me thinking again, um, you know, what uh, what his rhetorical options were. And I do on the one hand, yes, you know, I I think a lot of people wanted Obama to know better and do better. Um, And that's a super fair critique, in my opinion, of him. On the flip side, I have a little bit of compassion as well, because, you know, it's hard to get up there and and go full on Derek Bell. I think that he was in a position where he couldn't necessarily do that. And and I think he's right that the that the Trump administration is is white lash. And, you know, um, Dr. King famously wrote about about white lash. The, the Obama administration is in a tough spot with respect to race. I don't agree with uh, embracing individualism and this sort of post-racial uh, politic as a way out. Um, I do think, though, that um, he had a limited number of options. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair. Um, I think my concern with about him and Michelle is, you know, do they really believe this? Because if what we won't know, right, until Mm -hmm. (laughs) their private letters and so on are uh, released. I I want to hope they don't. I do. Right. I mean, that's (laughs) kind of um, all we have until we actually get the archival (laughs) material. Absolutely. But as we get... um, Closer to wrapping up here, uh-huh. I want to ask you this this question about um, towards the end of your book in the last chapter, um, you talk about that creators of color resisted or fought back against uh, racialist narratives and intellectual property law. And, you know, who were they or how and to what extent were they successful? I know you use the example of Prince and uh, which is another uh, interesting case. Um, where he tried to reclaim his his um, rights to his music mm-hmm. and changed his name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe elaborate a little bit. Yeah, um, I like talking about Prince. Um, I actually um, this is this is developing into its own project. Prince is developing into his own project. So um, the argument that I'm making in the context here of copyright law goes back to some of what you were saying. Uh, at the beginning, uh, when you were talking about Du Bois and the lack of frameworks for Black genius, a lot of the work that Prince does is to create language and space, cultural space, for talking about Black genius. I want to be clear that I don't think he is the only artist that did this. I don't think that he is the only um, musician that did this. I think that the love symbol controversy, though, is a really uh, productive moment for thinking about the navigational space that Black artists have in the world. Uh, Prince had a lot of latitude with Warner Brothers, so he signed uh, uh, his first contract with Warner Brothers when he was in his teens, late teens, and he had a lot of creative control compared to other artists. And with that creative control, you know, he was able to to produce some of the albums that we know and love. Um, he hit a speed bump in the '90s, though, and I was I was in my teens at the time, and my recollection of it is that in the moment, people were like, "Why is Prince changing his name to this symbol? What is happening right now?" You know, uh, and then he appeared for 
um, some time with the word slave on his face. Well, in this posthumous moment, I think people are looking back and saying, oh, the thing that Prince was doing actually was was genius because he was pushing back against um, what Warner Brothers was imposing on him. He was making a sort of labor protest, and he was also critiquing uh, the the way that black artists have been exploited in the music industry. So by doing that, he was able to call attention to the idea of black creatorship um, as as a category in the world. Um, he was also able to call attention uh, to a number of ways that the black people historically have been oppressed in the United States. So for me, the symbol reads as invoking uh, critiques of uh, sound recordings not being protectable. Um, so if we look back at the reasons that black artists weren't protected, one reason was that they couldn't write down their sheet music and right. they couldn't read and write, right? Because they were structurally disenfranchised in that way. So you had white, um, white producers um, and white managers taking advantage of these black artists. So there's a lot of ways, I think, to read the symbol, but I think you can read it as, you know, um, uh, as symbolic of the X that a lot of black artists signed their names with before they could read and write in this period before um, sound recordings were protected. I think you can read it as uh, resonance with Malcolm X. Um, and I think you can read this whole performance as a critique of the way that ownership structures work in the music industry. Uh, one of Prince's great battles toward the second half of his life was owning his master records. And he has this great quote where he says, if you don't own your masters, your masters own you. Um, he's one of one of the first artists um, that really pushes for owning master records. And that is a copyright question. That's a question of who has the ability to make money from your compositions. So Prince really stands for me for the creation of what Molina would call counterscripts. Um, he stands for me for the creation of new narratives of black genius. Uh, he also stands for me um, for a critique of the way that ownership regimes work in the context of intellectual, uh, of intellectual property law. And, um, you know, the 1619 Project did this great episode on music. Um, in that episode, I think sonically shows us how much theft has happened in the context of black music. And Prince is like, no, we're not going to do this anymore. You know, we're going to we're going to talk about these labor politics. We're going to talk about ownership and we're going to talk about copyright and exploitation. Yeah, I would also say um, just to kind of wrap it up, I think Prince also, I mean, he played 27 instruments. He, he stand, you know. He's this example of black genius that there's no language for that he's asserting himself as a creator and a, a creative genius, really, I think. Um, so, Dr. Vats, as we wrap things up, tell us about your uh, uh, your uh, next work or your current scholarship, um, some current research projects you're working on. Sure. Um, I am continuing down this road of race and intellectual property. Um, I gestured toward one of those, uh, the projects. I'm working on two book projects right now, sort of uh, simultaneously um, in fits and starts. So one of them is actually taking a look at 
Prince's contributions to intellectual property more more generally. Um, I in the color of creatorship look at his copyright interventions. What I learned in doing the research for that book was that Prince actually made contributions in other areas of intellectual property as well. So I am writing a book that focuses on Prince and uh, intellectual property rights and his contributions to, say, rights of publicity, to copyright law, to patent law, um, and, and so on. So that's the first project I'm working on. The second project actually takes a look at um, race in the hospitality industry, and in particular in the cocktail industry. Um, so I don't know, that project is a lot less far along, um, but I think it's going in the direction of taking a look at um, social media, how um, black and brown uh, bartenders and bar owners are able to leverage uh, social media to create social justice conversations. Um, and then also a look into how branding works in that space. So, you know, trademark law is a body of law, but it is also a lived, practiced, performed um, experience of brands. And I'm interested in how that can be negotiated in digital spaces uh, here in the context of of hospitality. Oh, very interesting. It sounds just fascinating, especially I look forward to reading your work, uh, your book on Prince. Oh, well, Dr. Vats, we have taken up enough of your time this afternoon, but I want to thank you for participating in this interview about your important book, The Color of Creatorship. I so appreciate it. This was super fun. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You're welcome.